Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. It was here where Marcia was last seen crossing the highway by a passing truck driver before she disappeared without a trace. Despite the coroner years later finding Marcia had most likely died, her family holds out hope that's not the case. Tony Ryan's sister Marcia disappeared in 1996 after leaving her Melbourne home. 
Marsha told her family she was going on a road trip with her dog Ziggy to see their parents in Queensland. But as you'll hear from Tony, Marsha's car was found abandoned in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria. No sign of Marsha or Ziggy. Tony's been relentless in trying to find out what happened to Marsha, who was 33 when she vanished. Could she be living off the grid somewhere in Australia? She'd done it before when she was younger. Did someone kill her? Why did she leave home so abruptly? Tony wonders a number of things. Did the smell of marijuana that her housemate had been smoking trigger a trauma response in Marsha, who had experienced mental ill health and drug use in her late teens and early 20s? Why was her car found where it was, in the different direction to Queensland, like he thought she was heading? There's a number of theories that Tony has explored in the absence of any new information. Tony's story is detailed in Nicole Morris's book, Vanished. We spoke to Nicole for a recent episode, and he joined ATC to talk about the impact of having a missing sibling and why he won't give up trying to find Marsha. We have five children in our family, the mum and dad and five kids, and the five of us were born in a six-year period. So we're all very close. Uh, when my brother Paul turned five, he had four younger siblings. I'm number four. Marcy was number five. Paul, who lives in northern New South Wales, is the eldest. Diane and Mark was the middle child, number three. And he passed away in 2016 at the age of 55. And mum and dad have since passed away. Mum in 2006, dad in 2013. So growing up, we grew up in Burwood when it was uh, dirt roads and a chook farm in one of the side streets and things like that. So Burwood was the outer suburbs back then. And when Marcy was about 10, we moved to Box Hill South where we had all our teenage years. Pretty easy life. I think we're born in the best time for any generation, our age group. We could go out in the morning, come back at night stop in at home and get some lunch on the way through. We knew all our neighbours. We played with all our neighbours. Every family had four or five kids. We all grew up together. We all did stuff together. Dammed up creeks, climbed trees, rode billy carts down the street. Spent a lot of time on farms because my grandparents owned a farm down in Mordialic, a dairy farm, so we used to help out on the dairy farm occasionally. As teenagers, we worked at um, selling shoes at Dandenong Market and things like that. Marcy did that as well. We were about... 13, 14 at the time. So we just had what I would call just the average Australian family life in the suburbs of Melbourne. So we got through our teenage years and Diane and Marcia got on very well, the two sisters. There's about three years between them. And they used to go to parties together. When Diane got a licence, she'd pick Marcia up and take her. Then when Diane was... 20, she got killed in a car accident. A 16-year-old drunk driver stole a car from the MCG at the grand final and hit my sister head-on in Dandenong North. My sister was driving four people home from a party, about 200 metres away from the party, been hit head-on, and Marcy was at that party. Somebody came into the party said, uh, there's been an accident down the road, it's terrible, and they said what the car was in it, and Marcia instantly knew it was Diane's car. So she ran down there, and she got there before the ambulance and the police arrived. And the four other people that were in there, Paula Harold ended up in a wheelchair for 18 months. 
Diane's boyfriend was in the passenger seat and he had a dog on his lap and the dog got killed and he, he survived. And the other two, I think one ended up with a broken arm and the other one was okay. My sister was dead in the driver's seat. So Marcia, as a 17-year-old, has been confronted with her sister dead in, in the car. The steering wheel hit her under the chin and put her, chin, her head into the roof of the car. So, And the motor had come through the front wall of the car and crushed all her legs. So Marcia's confronted with this scene and things changed. Because we went from a family where everything was cruising along to losing a sister. Things were different back then. There was no trauma counselling. There was no help. There was, it's in two days' time, you've got a funeral. Get over it. Get on with your funeral. So we dealt with that as a family. And then we all had to move on with life. Mortgages still had to be paid. People still had to go to school. People still had to go to work. Yeah. And you're all young, you're young adults at this point. Yeah, and yeah. Paul was uh, 21, I was 18, Mark was 19, and Marcy was 17. Clearly, from what you described, I mean, that is a life-changing event for all of you. Mm. You said, you know, particularly for Marcia, things changed. So what was Marcia like sort of in those months or year before Diane died? Like, how would you describe her? Uh, before Diane died, just a teenager. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just getting on, yeah. you know, 17-year-old going to school, a good student. Uh, she's quite good at sport. Yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah. We were just living. Yeah. <laughs> we, didn't actually, we didn't actually put much thought to it. No, we well, just no. Living. None of us knew what we were going to do in our future, no. except Diane. She was going to be a physiotherapist. When people experience trauma, you don't know how it's going to play out and when it's going to come back. So Marcia ended up moving to northern New South Wales, a place called Dondinalong, living in a shack, basically off-grid, in the middle of the bush, in the middle of nowhere in northern New South Wales. So when she went off there, I know mum and dad weren't happy about where she was living and what she was doing up there. My brother Paul was living up near there, so he was sort of like half keeping an eye on her. He knew where she was. and So Marcy sort of like packed up, went with this guy living in the, in the bush. Supposedly there was drugs involved and various other things. And after a couple of years, Marcy had a breakdown. And she ended up in the psych ward at Lismore Hospital and in, in northern New South Wales, complete psychosis. She would have been between 19 and 22 years of age. Paul rang and said, Marcy's in a bad way. I've had to get her admitted to hospital. So mum and dad went up there and then dad had to get back to work after about a week. So I flew up there and stayed with mum for about a week, talking to the doctors, saying, well, what can we do? We can't be going back from Melbourne to Lismore all the time. We need to get her back to Melbourne. And there, there used to be a place which people understood as Kew Cottages. Over in Kew, there's a place called Willsmere Hospital, which was a, a massive psych hospital for Melbourne. They, I think there was a ward of about 100 people, all with psychosis of various sorts. And we wanted to get her back there so that we could get her the treatment that we thought she needed and to be in Melbourne where we could visit and, 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 and deal with it as a family. So we got Marcy back to Melbourne. She ended up in the psych ward at Willsmere. Took about 18 months of treatment to get her right again, which is a long time to be in, in one of those sort of wards. And she came good. My uncle and auntie owned a transport company in Huntingdale and they offered her a job. And she went to work for them. And she worked for them for the 10 years up until she disappeared. Uh, and that's Bill and Tia Thompson. 
Lovely, lovely people. So things got back on track. Marcy's life got back on track. She bought herself a house, was paying a mortgage, bought herself a motorbike, which she used to ride through the hills, through the Dandongs and travel around. Lived in Seaford near the beach, so she used to walk her dog Ziggy on the beach all the time. It was sort of her quiet space where she could go after work and on weekends. And on weekends, she'd ride the motorbike, come over and visit me and my kids because I had three young children at the time. And everything was going along all right. She'd go and visit mum and dad. Mum and dad moved to one Turner. Then she got engaged to a guy named Neil. Uh, Neil was a plumber. His brother was a cop. And things were actually going okay. Marcy is, she would have been about 30 years of age and she got a thyroid problem where she had to have her thyroid removed and having it removed affects your hormones uh, in fairly major ways. So they had to cut her neck open, remove the thyroid, and then she had to go into medication for the thyroid. Now, somewhere in amongst all this, her relationship with Neil went off the rails um, in that they were no longer engaged. So I don't know what happened to cause the engagement to finish. It could have been because of her removing of the thyroid. They put you on, um, I think it's radioactive iodine. is a chemical they give you when you've had your thyroid removed to keep your hormones in balance and things like that. And one of the side effects is that is um, it can make you sterile. So she wouldn't be able to have children and things. So that finished off, but it didn't finish off in a bad way because Neil would still drop in and visit mum and dad, um, and that was okay, and occasionally see Marcy. Marcy would be there when he dropped in and things like that. And Marcy wanted to do a deck extension on her house, put a deck out the back so she could sit out the back of her house in Seaford and that, but she couldn't afford it. So mum and dad said, look, we'll get the deck done and we'll get Neil to do it. So Neil went down and started building this deck on the back of Marcy's house that mum and dad were paying for. So meanwhile, Marcy was going off to work every day and walking a dog on the beach and going out with family and friends. She took up belly dancing as an activity, and good luck to her. I don't know whether she's any good at it because I never saw her do it, but I've still got a costume at home. <laughs> and then she started to say a few strange things uh, in, in our conversations about her past coming back and... Uh, you know, I normally have the beach to myself at this time of year, and now there's people on the beach that I don't like and things like that. A bit of paranoia kicking in, which had a bit of a ring to it from her breakdown 10, 15 years earlier. There was slight signs of it, and it was like, oh, that's a bit strange. Okay, well, oh, she's going along, okay, so we get on with our own lives. And then my mum rings me on the 19th of August, 1996, and says, oh, I just spoke to Marcia and she doesn't sound well. Can you go down and check on her? And they said, oh, I'm at work at the moment. I'll go after work. And she goes, no, I need to go down now. Mark's already on his way down there. And I said, well, if Mark's on his way down there, he can deal with it. <laughs> and I just sort of brushed it off, you know. I said, don't worry about it. Mark will deal with it. And then in hindsight, I probably should have got off my ass and gone down there. We all carry a little bit of guilt. Is in, why didn't I go down there? It's only seafood. I could have taken a day off work. No big deal. I could have just left work, you know. Is work actually that important at the end of the day? So Mark was going down there to deal with it, and I thought, I'll go down there after work, you know, no drama. And after work, I spoke to Mark, and Mark said, oh, I've got her to go and have a sleep. And I said, well, she's sleeping. I'm not coming down there. So I didn't bother going down there. And then I get a call later. Might have even been the next day. Mark said, Marcy took off. And I said, oh, what do you mean she took off? And he goes, well... She tried to run me over in the driveway because I wouldn't get out of the way and she took off. 
lady named Adele Finn was there. She was a belly dancing lady. So they were the two people that were there when she took off. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see that Mark blames the lady for waking Marcia up when she was having a sleep, trying to, Mark's trying to get her to have a sleep because she was overwrought. And this other person's waking her up because she didn't trust Mark because she didn't know who Mark was. And they said, where's she going? She said, I was going to visit mum and dad on the Gold Coast because mum and dad spent four months of, every year during the winter on the Gold Coast had a unit right across the beach at Surface Paradise. So Marcia was heading up there and I thought, well, good luck to her. You yeah, know, I didn't not? think too much of it. I thought she's going up to see mum and dad. You know, she's got a car, got a dog. So where'd she take with her? He said, nothing, just the dog. All right, well, we'll wait a couple of days for her to get to Queensland and hopefully she'll be all right. A couple of days later, mum rang and said, she still hasn't arrived. And I said, well, you know, she might have stopped somewhere to have a sleep and, you know, usual stuff. How long does it take to get to Queensland when you're driving on your own? So I said, all right, I'll go down to her house. I'll check that she hasn't come home, like changed her mind, had turned around and gone home. So I had one of the guys from work with me, a guy named Martin. We went down there. Nothing in the house, no one in the house. No one had been there. I thought, okay. So I went home. Next night, mum rings. Marcy hasn't turned up. I said, that's all right. She might have turned around and come home. I'll go down. So the next day we went down to her house. So we did this each day. So she took off on the Monday night, late. Went down with Mark on Thursday. And then when I went down on the Friday, there was um, some stuff on her answering machine. There was a guy from um, a country town down, down in Gippsland that rang and said, Ah, oh, Marcia, I found your wallet. You might be looking for your wallet. I found it. This is my name, this is my phone number, this is my address. I've got your wallet here. Come and get it whenever you want. And I thought, why's this guy got Marcia's wallet? And why's he got it in Gippsland if she's heading to the Gold Coast? Because if you go to the Gold Coast via Gippsland, you, you add on another 500-odd kilometres. I thought, that's not good. So that night I went to the police and said, my sister's missing this guy down in Gippsland's got a wallet. I said, something's not right. And they looked up on the on their screen and said, oh, her card's been flagged twice by Maui police and twice by Morwell police. And I thought, well, what's she doing in Gippsland? I thought, why is she hanging around Maui and Morwell? So that was really odd. And he said, oh, you'll have to report at Seaford Police because that's where she lived. And I was at Baronia Police Station because that was my local police station. So I thought, all right. So I thought, okay, tomorrow morning, when I get up, I'll go down to Seaford Police and I reported again at Seaford Police. So on the Saturday morning, I got up. I stopped at a house, listened to her answering machine. There's a message from Vic Road saying, Marcia, your car's here in, on the side of the highway at Morwell in a dangerous position. If the car's not removed, we'll impound it. And I thought, oh, that's not good. Because if the car's been on the side of the road for a few days, that means the car's not moving, then where the hell's Marcia? So then I went to Seaford Police and they said, well, if the car's down at Murray and Morwell, you need to go and see Murray Police. So then I went down to Maui and I had my work colleague with me, Martin, and we went down to Maui Police and they said, oh, it was last reported by Morwell Police, you'll have to go to Morwell Police. So Morwell's 13 kilometres past Maui. So by this stage, we'd driven past the car because on the way to Maui Police, I thought, well, if it's down there on the side of the highway, I'll just drive along the highway until I find it. So I found the car, it was locked, went to Maui Police. They said, go to Morwell Police. So I went to Morwell Police and they said, oh, I can't really help you at this time. If you're going to move the car, just get it moved. And I said, well, I want to see, my sister's missing. I want to see if, she, if she's in the boot. And they gave me this funny look and said, well, just break into it. I said, well, I break into it with it. And he gave me a coat hanger. So I thought, okay, 
So my view was, well, fuck you guys. I'll go down there and I'll break another car myself. So me and Martin, we went down and we broke into the car using their coat hanger. There's nothing in the car, no sign of anything in the car. Dog's not there either? Dog's not there, nothing there. And I thought, what if somebody stuffed her in the boot? I don't know why I thought that. So we pulled the back seat out and smashed. There's a piece of wood at the back of the back seat. So we smashed that, stuck the head into the boot and went, well, she's not in the boot. I thought, well, I rang a tow truck company. So I rang a towing, towing company and said, need you to pick up this car. I said, where do you want me to take it? I said, I don't care. You got a yard? He said, yeah. I said, I'll just take it and stick it in the yard. I said, I'll deal with it later. But now it's like, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon. And I've got a wallet. I picked it up from the guy in Trafalgar. And I said to him, where'd you come by the wallet? And he told me and it was back near Darnham. Now, just for geography, when you're leaving, going from Melbourne, you go through Darnham before you get to Trafalgar, before you get to Moe, before you get to Morwell, in that order. And Darnham's about 20 kilometres before where Marcy's car was found. And her car was found in Moe Mo- area? Between Moe and Morwell. Yep. About 2K past Moe. 11k before more well and her car was on the left hand side of the highway in a cutting so when they put the highway through they cut through like a mountain sort of thing and the height of the cutting on the in, in the median strip between the two sides of the highway the divided highway would be 10 meters high or more straight up so there's no way you'd scale that uh, so she's in this cutting on the left-hand side of the highway, there's some videos that I put on YouTube under the title of Marcia Roadside Day and Marcia Roadside Night or something like that. There's about five of them where I went down there with my camera and I've filmed during the day and during the night exactly where a car was and walking along that stretch of the highway. And if you watch it, it's not where you'd pull up deliberately. It's not where you'd get out of your car. It is actually quite dangerous. This is the cutting I'm talking about, but that's the scale of the wall across from where a car was. But as you can see, this cutting on the median strip is actually quite high, and it's very steep. There's no way you climb that in the wet at night. When I went back there to see where he got the wallet, I pulled over to where he said there's a little gravel patch on the median strip. So not on the left-hand side, in the median strip between the two divided sections of the highway. It'd be 50 metres wide. And when I got out there, I found remnants of other cards of hers. So I knew I was in exactly the right spot where he found the wallet. So I grabbed the other couple of cards that were on the ground and thought, that's not good because the only way the wallet could have ended up there is if it's thrown out of the driver's window and the person is driving in the right-hand lane. It couldn't have been thrown out from the passenger seat through the driver's window. That'd be, some people think there might've been someone else in the car. And it wasn't thrown out the passenger's window. So it's not like the passenger grabbing it and throwing it out the passenger's window. It definitely looked like, to me, it's come out the driver's window. And it couldn't be somebody driving towards Melbourne because you can't, you wouldn't be able to fling a wallet 50 metres. So this is on the Saturday. So then I got home on the Saturday night and I've been out tracking down her car, wallets, trying to work out what the hell's going on. And then Saturday night, the homicide squad called me and said, I believe you've got a missing sister. I said, yeah. And I told them what I'd done that day. I said, I reported it to different police stations and whatever, and they wouldn't help me. And they said, that's okay. We're going to go down and we'll get the car tomorrow and whatever. I said, oh, I've had the car moved. And he said, what did you 
You weren't um, getting much help, let's I wasn't, face it. Well, I wasn't. You were and I being was in, sent on a wild goose chase. I've been dealing with this for five days in a way mm. in my head, like where is she? So then the police started having a go at me for interfering with an investigation. And I thought, well, I'm just doing what I've got to do. And I had people with me the whole time. So there's nothing I said that couldn't be verified easily, like the guy with the wallet. And I had, I had his address, his phone number. I had the, the tape from Vic Rhodes uh, because Marcy had an answering machine and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But the thing is, even after all that said, it made absolutely no difference because whatever happened to Marcy had already happened, right? If she's hitchhiked and taken off into New South Wales, she'd already hitchhiked and taken off into New South Wales. If somebody had done something to her, they've already done something to her. There was nothing we were doing that was actually making any difference. We're siblings. We're just trying to find our sister, you know? So the last known sighting we've got that the police have verified is after midnight on the Monday night, on Monday night, Tuesday morning at about 12.30. She spoke to a truck driver on the side of the road after she'd left her car. So the truck driver's come past on the highway, spotted the car, it's raining, spotted the car in this bend in this cutting, gone about 100 metres up the road and spotted Marcy and pulled over and offered her help. And he said Marcy was in a distressed state and refused help. So he made a note and his truck was also GPS tracked by, I think it was Woolworths that he was working for. So he made note of it and on tracking back, the police have verified that he never deviated off his trip. So that's always been the last known sighting that we had of Marcia was that truck driver. And something else has changed since then, which isn't in the book because I haven't been able to verify it. But since then, a, a gentleman named <laughs> says that he saw her the next day at her car with the keys on the bonnet of the car, talking to two other people in a white XD Ford, I think he said. And he saw her talking to these people in a nice sort of way at the vehicle the next morning at about 8am. And now come forward about two years ago to me and said, I saw your sister at the car the next morning. And I told the police this over 20 years ago. And I said, well, we've never heard that story. This is nothing new. And he said, it's been bugging me ever since. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The original detectives were very good. And for the first few months, they pulled out all stops. They had people on horseback checking the bush. They set up things on the sides of the road. They got media attention to it. And then after a while, it just disappears and the response disappears. And they wait and they wait and they wait for new information. Five years later, they did a coroner's inquest. I did go to the inquest at the time and we did get news items again after the inquest because the, there's news reporters that stand outside the coroner's court. And as you walk out, they say, what we're here for. And I said, well, this is an inquest into my sister that went missing some years ago. Was that ever in the newspapers? Yes, it was. So then they jump all over you. And I said, uh, can we talk to your parents? And I said, well, I'll go and ask him. So I went over there. Mum's in tears because the coroner's just given a, we expected an open finding and that's not what we got. So that would have been in the early 2000s? 2001. And the reason why we had to have the inquest, Marcia had a mortgage. She had a loan. There's some tricky things that happen when someone goes missing. You lose access to their bank account. You have no rights over any of their stuff, yet they're not there to manage it. So if, in Marcy's case, she had a mortgage and a partially paid off house, she had a motorbike loan partially paid off. If you don't deal with them, the banks foreclose and sell your house and whatever. And then if the person comes back a year later, all their stuff's gone. It's a bit trickier than when someone dies. When someone dies, there's a will or you apply to the Supreme Court and, you know, you take over their, um, their estate. So mum and dad, we got the courts to rule that we could look after her affairs until we found her. And with the inquest, so obviously having the inquest helped you to manage the, like, bureaucracy of Marcia going missing, yep. but what was the finding? You said you thought it'd be an open finding. Yeah, it was that she died on or, on or around the 19th of August 1996 to personal persons unknown. And the 19th, was that the, the day? The Monday night. They're saying she's dead. At that stage, mum, dad and me, and we were hoping she's still alive. <laughs> We've got a coroner telling us that she's dead, so... Um, that was devastating for mum and dad. For me, it was like, well, you can rule whatever you like. That's not what I believe, so yeah. I'll stick to what I believe. What, what's the evidence that leads them to believe that? There isn't any. Look, there was no blood, no signs of violence, no witnessing of violence. The truck driver spoke to her. She was agitated, but that doesn't mean anything. One of my theories is what if she's walking along the road, somebody hits her, panics, Chucks her in the boot, goes and buries her in the forest. So they've actually hit her accidentally, but because they were drink driving or whatever, they've panicked and and whatever. My view, and this is my view, I've always felt Marcia took off and wanted to get away. We hitchhiked a lot as kids. Yeah. So I've got no problem with the idea of Marcia getting out of a car hitchhiking, being picked up by a couple of young people heading up the coast of New South Wales and telling them, Drop me off at Marine Villa or something. And by the way, no one needs to know that you dropped me off at Marine Villa. 
Uh, it wasn't publicised in New South Wales when Marcia went missing. It was only Queensland, Victoria and Tassie, I think, that published it. But because she lived off-grid in Dunding along for a number of years when she had a breakdown years beforehand, Marcia going to live in a shack in the bush wasn't out of my way of thinking. I wanted to get away from things. Life was becoming hard with mortgages and motorbike loan repayments and she's mentally tough and her dog was getting old. I don't know. I still have a thought that maybe she just left. Have, that, have you thought about the possibility that Marcia may have taken her own life? So my issue with suicide, when people suicide, they can't bury their own body. Very hard to hide your body when you suicide. Um, Very true. Drain yourself in one of the dams on one of the farms and then we go through a drought and the dam's empty and there's no body there. How do you hide your body when you suicide? Two other things that have come up in recent times. A lady contacted me that was, had been up near Ararat, a place called Green Lake, and believes Marcy was living off-grid near Green Lake in Ararat. And during COVID, I couldn't get up there, but I had a friend of mine go up there looking for this particular person and they couldn't find him that the person had mentioned. But she reckons that by all descriptions, she matches Marcy's description living off-grid near Green Lake. How did that information get passed to you? Through Facebook. Missing Persons Week, every year I'd gone on and I'd answer people's questions and people would send me information. And another young lady has contacted me, which I had an extensive conversation about. 12 hours one night through the night about she thinks that her father may have killed Marcia, his father and his mate, uh, because he's an arsehole of a man and she found out a whole lot of things he'd done in the Gippsland area through that period of time. However, he died some years ago, but the friend is still alive. And all that information I handed over to the police recently. So another story that's come out recently a lady from Trafalgar, an elderly lady from Trafalgar, her daughter contacted me and said, Mum saw a news article about your sister on the TV and said, oh, they'll never find her because I know where her, her body's buried. So I spoke to and convinced her to let me speak to her mother. And we, after a few days, we convinced her mother to speak to the police. And supposedly, as the story goes, is oh, a year or two after Marcy went missing, her brother-in-law came home one day and she said he didn't look well, looked white as a sheet. And he told him the story about he saw a couple of mounds in the, he was going to plant some dope plants in an area of Mundara State Forest, 30 kilometres inland from the Moe Morwell turnoffs where Marcy's car was. And he dug up one of the graves and found a dog. And there was a lady's hand sticking out of the grave next to it. This is what he's telling the elderly lady that lives in Trafalgar and the elderly lady in Trafalgar and her husband went to find this area and couldn't find it. She got really worried about even going in there. So she went to the police station, sat in the police station for about an hour and a half and none of the police would talk to her. So she got up and left and never told them her story. Since that, a bushfire has been through the area and the whole area has changed and she can't recognise the area that her brother-in-law was talking about. So one of my tasks, being a sibling, because the police have been down there with her and have said there's 7,000 hectares there and we're not searching the whole 7,000 hectares. So one of my tasks when I retire probably later this year is to go searching Mundara State for us looking for a, a body that may or may not be there. We don't actually have anything. This is the problem for us as a family. It's like, well, what do we actually have? We have a wallet. We have a car. We'll see a news item on the news and we'll say, 
skeletal remains found in Moondara State Forest on a Saturday afternoon. And you're sitting there thinking, male, female? How long have the remains been there? Skeletal remains must have been there a long time. They think Marcy might be buried in Moondara State Forest. So I'm ringing my brother saying, I think we found Marcy's body. I get on the pool and we get all, well, we don't know whether to be happy or sad because we want to find her, but, yeah. A couple of hours later, I get a phone call from one of the detectives and they said, it's not your sister. And I said, that's good. And at the same time, I'm thinking, well, at least I wouldn't know what happened. There's this whole thing about DNA, National DNA Database. You've probably heard about it, read about it. It hasn't been working. And up until about a year ago, it wasn't working at all. Every state took DNA samples in different ways. Each state did their own thing. And the way they recorded the information was completely different in every state. So when they tried to bring all the state's DNA databases together, they couldn't. And they've been trying to massage it ever since and try and get a national DNA database. So when mum and dad were alive, supposedly they gave the police DNA samples in case they ever find Marcy's remains or whatever. If she's in prison somewhere, they can match it because prisoners have to give DNA samples. When I asked about these DNA samples from the police, have you actually got DNA samples from my mum and that? They couldn't verify it. So about two years ago, I started the process of them taking my DNA samples. And then because of COVID, the coroner's court shut down, which is where they do the DNA sampling and stuff like that. And then they, and so it got postponed about four times, but about six months ago or so, they finally got my DNA sample, which I believe is now in the National DNA Database. And around Australia, they have a whole lot of bodies buried that the police have found, and they don't know who they are. John and Jane Doe's, and they have them in cemeteries in each state that of people they've never identified. In Victoria, they took samples of all of those before they buried them. In the other states, they didn't. So the only way they can get a sample is they have to go and exhume them. So they've got bodies in some states, say New South Wales, that they don't know who the person is. We've got people like Marcy that could be missing in New South Wales, but because they don't cross state borders... My sister could actually be buried in a, in a cemetery in New South Wales and we've still got her on the missing persons list. And that because they didn't take a DNA sample, we don't know. So what they're trying to do is get the DNAs from these John and Jane Does that are buried around and match them into these national DNA you databases. You just got to do it once, don't you? You just, you it's it a once. big job, but you do it and once. And once you've got then, it, you yeah. share that information between the states. Yeah. Because... If my sister's buried in Queensland and they don't share the information with Victoria, we're sitting here going, where is she? Yeah. And they're sitting up there going, we've got this person, we don't know who it is. Ridiculous that this has taken so many years that families have been fighting for this to be done for years and it still isn't finished. The other thing is, with the group of families of missing people, Daryl Floyd and them have had contact with Search Dogs Australia which is run out of New South Wales. It's a volunteer group, and they train their dogs to search for things. Now, when I discussed cadaver dogs with the police, with Vic, Vic police, and said, well, if we've got this area in Mandara State Forest, why can't we get a cadaver dog? If she's in a shallow grave, the dogs might be able to find it. And they said, the only one we've got is in Queensland. Victoria doesn't have its own cadaver dogs. Is that because they've got to train them from a puppy? It's quite specific training? It is, or? Um, and it takes years and years. And cadaver dogs is a very specialist one. A lot of them will find, you know, if I bury some food three inches under the ground or a body, a person that's died six months ago, they'll find them quite easily. But when it's 26 years ago, it's supposedly a lot trickier yeah. and very, very few dogs in the world that can do it. 
Because when they go to build new housing estates mm. in old towns, they don't know where people were buried. So a lot of times they run the cadaver dogs over the fields before they start digging up the fields to put new housing estates. There are dogs that do this sort of stuff. I've never been able to get one of them to come out there with me. So, and I don't know how to train one. So it would be really nice if somebody said they had a cadaver dog that would want to come for a walk through the bush with me for a few days. You've told your story to Nicole Morris, who's written a book called Vanished. And yep. Nicole, people like, I've known about Nicole's blog for a long time because I've actually looked on Nicole's blog to help me with some of my writing. It's an incredible, incredible resource that has given families of many missing people the chance to have a voice because often it's very hard to get your story out. Just one thing about the book Vanished, it's taken a different it's a slightly different slant to what most people write these books about. What Nicole has focused on is the siblings of the missing people and what they go through. Because nobody, people care about the missing person and, and sometimes about the mother and father and whatever. And then you've got this cohort of siblings that we're not the lead characters. And then when our parents pass away, then if we don't take it over, nobody takes it over. Uh, the police aren't doing anything. They're not even looking. They get involved when new information comes. So all the police have done in the 26 years is wait. How have you been looking after your own self-care, your mental health, the the trauma of having a sibling missing? Because as you said, the siblings kind of get forgotten to the side. Siblings are often the sort of silent uh, sufferers. So how how have you been going? Me, I've got a very good wife, Rob. Yes, I met Robin, yes. (laughs) And I've got three adult daughters who are doing really well in life. They've all got their own places. One lives in Darwin and the other two, well, one was in Adelaide for a while, but the two are in Melbourne, one's in Darwin. And I've got a lovely granddaughter and I work. And that just keeps you sane. I'm just trying to get my finances to a point where I can retire. And then I'll tackle this project. I've bought the uh, metal detector already. I don't know how to use it. I'm looking for Ziggy's dog collar oh, and, and yeah. Marcy's ring or necklace. I'm hoping one of them will pop up on a metal detector. That's all I'm looking for because I've got nothing that can scan for bones. How can um, listeners, obviously we want them to read Nicole's book and there's MPAN, there's lots of different things online, but where, where can they go to get more information? How they can they practically support people and also anyone who knows anything? Let's face it, what, what would you like listeners to take away from this conversation? Um, I think just being aware of the tentacles of missing persons, that it just doesn't impact the close family members. It actually goes a lot further than that, the the work colleagues and and whatever. And don't be afraid to speak to them. Most of us are quite happy to talk about it. What we don't like is the silence on all our cases. We don't know what the police are doing. We know that in most of our cases – the original investigation was flawed. If you see somebody pushing like MPAN with Lauren O'Keefe and whatever, they, they need donations and stuff. That's a volunteer organisation. The Terry Floyd Foundation, while not the money doesn't go towards the mind search for Terry, it, it goes towards um, helping children around the age of 12, which is the age Terry was when he went missing. So if people can help resource some of these organisations that are trying to do things, but there's also families trying to change laws, and some families have been successful with it, that have been able to change laws to make it a bit easier for the families and the siblings and whatever to deal with the systems 
that are in place. Is there anything else, final thoughts that you want to say? Well, just uh, if you listen to this podcast, Mars, make contact. I'll tell you off for running away, but other than that, give you a hug at the same time. If anybody knows anything that's not already on the public record, feel free to contact me. You'll get a response. Thanks to our guest, Tony Ryan. If you have any information to share about Marsha or any other missing person, phone Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.